Aren't you thankful that you can hear me? Aren't you thankful that God humbles the proud? Turn to Daniel chapter 4 with me. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 27 is the focus of our attention this morning. There are two ways that we can think about that question. That we're thankful that God humbles the proud. We can think of it in terms of wicked people in the world who are opposed to God and that one day God will humble them through judgment. That He will show what is right and that the way that they lived and opposed Him was wrong. That's one thing we can be thankful for. That God will judge the wicked. And that is true. But what about the fact that God humbled the wicked, you and me? And He did that by showing us that we were not the final master in our own life. Do you realize that everyone who comes to Christ has to be humbled in order to come to that realization that God is the Master, that we ought to seek Him first, like we just sang? For some, that means a difficult circumstances needs to, uh, a, difficult, a difficult circumstance needs to come into their life to wake them up to the reality of God's rule. That's how God woke up my parents spiritually. They were successful, happy, filled with family and career and religion and thought that they were getting everything out of life that life had to offer. But then God brought them to their knees by allowing my baby sister to die without a medical explanation. See, God humbled the proud. And and my parents both uh, are in heaven now, but but... At the time that they were on the earth, they would have gladly told you following that, that God humbled them through those circumstances. And God humbles each of us in order for us to come to Him. Maybe it wasn't as something as drastic as that in your life, but God had to humble you in order for you to come to Him. And, and that means that we acknowledge His rule in our life. We, we recognize that we're not the master of our own life and that God is ultimately the one whom we serve. And God, I believe, is going to do the same thing to King Nebuchadnezzar in order to get him to see that the power that he had did not come from him. did not come from his own ability, but it was because of God's gracious rule and God's going to humble him as we'll begin to see this morning and then we'll conclude uh, with this passage next week. Daniel chapter 4. Let me read the text for us beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay in my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the vision of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind, and as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you, and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And in that, the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king that you may be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. And in that, it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you 
Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. God is gracious to humble the proud. King Nebuchadnezzar in verses 1 through 3 is speaking after the events of verses 4 through 33. So what he's recounting for you in verses 4 through 33 is really a testimony of how God had humbled him. And verses 1 through 3 are what he says about himself and about God following those events. Chapter 4, I believe, of Daniel is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. And we'll explore this more fully next week. But let me give you a few reasons why I say that. That King Nebuchadnezzar is converted through these events. First, turn back to chapter 2, verse 47. Chapter 2, verse 47. What I want you to notice is how King Nebuchadnezzar addresses the God of the universe. How does King Nebuchadnezzar address God and His work? Chapter 2, verse 47. This is following Daniel's revelation or revealing of King Nebuchadnezzar's first dream about the statue. Verse 47, The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So what I want you to notice is that he's talking about Daniel's God in terms of Daniel. This is your God, Daniel. And he is a God of gods. He is a God out there, but he doesn't say anything about it being personal. Look at chapter 3, following the events of the three young men, three Jewish young men who... Uh, defy the authority of the king and do not bow down to this huge idol. Chapter four, or I'm sorry, sorry, chapter three, verse twenty-eight. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, "Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants and put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god." Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. So he calls the God of the universe our God. He calls him the God of Daniel and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But notice in chapter 4 how he calls this God. How does He call our God? In chapter 4, verse 2, He says, uh, He's speaking this, we're going to see here that He basically gives a, a letter to all of these nations and He says, It has seemed good to Me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for Me. Instead of it being a God of gods, a King of kings, a revealer of mysteries, He says, the Most High God and what He's done for me. Not what this God has done for Daniel. Not what this God has done for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are all true. But now I want to tell you what the God of the universe has done for me. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar had seen God's power in Daniel's life and God's power in the three friends delivering them from the furnace. But now King Nebuchadnezzar sees God's signs and wonders in his own life. He sees it personally. So first reason that I think King Nebuchadnezzar is converted is that God's work becomes personal to him. 
second reason is that God's rule becomes worthy of His acknowledgement. God's rule becomes worthy of His acknowledgement. Turn or look down to verse 17 of chapter 4. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. So, we're going to get here in, in a minute, but what is the purpose of God tearing down this tree? The purpose is that the living may know that the Most High is ruler. One of the purposes that God gives, the primary purpose for why God sends the angels to chop down this tree that we'll discover is talking about King Nebuchadnezzar is because all mankind need to know, all the living need to know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Look down to verse 25. Daniel, as he interprets this dream for him, at the end of the verse says the very same thing. You're, you're going to be made like uh, an animal, a beast of the field, until seven periods of time will pass over you. The last part of verse 25 says, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. King Nebuchadnezzar, you're not going to be released from this insanity, this temporary form of insanity of eating with the beast in the field and having your hair and nails grow long. You're not going to be released from that until, look, look at the end of the verse again, until you, King Nebuchadnezzar, recognize that God is the most high ruler over the realm of mankind. God has a purpose, a purpose for King Nebuchadnezzar that he will acknowledge God's rule. And then skip down to verse 34, part of our text for next week, but, but you, get, you get this for free today. All right, Verse 34, but at the end of that period, okay, so he's saying after the seven periods of time or seven uh, times had passed, after that period of time, and he had been eating with the beast, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason, my rationale, returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and I praised and I honored Him who lives forever. Why? For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He, God, does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? What is it that King Nebuchadnezzar has come to realize at the end of this period of time in which he has made insane? He comes to realize that God has rule over all. That He has dominion over all things. And then look down at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven for all His works are true and His ways are just and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Do you know of any unbeliever that speaks about God in those terms? That He is the God of the universe? That He has dominion over all? That He is worthy of praise and acknowledgement? Do you know of any unbeliever that speaks about God in those terms? Hey, do you know of any unbeliever in the Bible who speaks about God in those terms? And for those two reasons, I think that, that is these two reasons. God work, God's work becomes personal to Him and God's rule becomes worthy of His praise. For those two reasons, I think King Nebuchadnezzar 
is genuinely converted. We'll visit that idea more next week. So look back now to verse 1. Because King Nebuchadnezzar begins with a salutation that sounds a lot like he is sending a message to the entire kingdom. This is not just, hey, some of you close advisors, don't get this out, okay? but, but I, I, something happened to me. No, he's saying, notice who he addresses here. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every, la- every language that live in all the earth. It sounds like the same group of people that he was having come to the dedication of his huge statue. And you need to come and bow down. Why? Because you need to recognize that I rule over you. But now he's saying, listen, all you people, listen to what's happened to me. Listen to what God has done for me. And so verses 1-3 through three happen after his conversion. Verses 4-33 through 33 are a description of his conversion, or we could call it his personal testimony. Well, in verses 4 through 18, God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. He had done this once before in chapter 2. He does it here again in chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar recounts this idea. And he, he has this dream and brings before him all the wise men. Hey, you come and tell me what this dream means. But this time, he does something different. Remember the first time in chapter 2, he said, in order to verify that you know what you're talking about and you're actually receiving a message from where this came, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You need to tell me the dream and the interpretation. They said, well, no, just tell us the dream. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, no. I want to make sure that this is legitimate. And so he wouldn't tell them the dream. Of course, Daniel is able to have the dream revealed to him from God and also reveal the interpretation. But this time, notice, he actually tells them the dream. Um, uh, Verse 7 is where we see that. The middle of the verse says, They all came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could make, not make its interpretation known to me. So this time he gives them one piece of the puzzle. They're supposed to fill in the rest. And verses 6 and 7 record the failure of the wise men to interpret the dream. He says, listen, I had a dream. It's really troubling me. It seems real, and it seems like it affects me, and so you need to tell me what it means. And this time I'm going to tell you what it is. not clear why King Nebuchadnezzar didn't call Daniel first. We're going to see here in verses 8 and 9 that Daniel actually is the one that he calls eventually. It could be that King Nebuchadnezzar knew that the judgment was from God. The revelation of this dream was about himself and that it was going to be a judgment of his own kingdom, his own rule. And so he maybe didn't want to know the truth. You know, some people don't want to know the truth. They just want to hear what they want to hear and they want to have their egos stroked. And perhaps that's where King Nebuchadnezzar was prior to his conversion. He wanted an interpretation that satisfied him, but when he recognized that that dream still troubled him and they could not make a proper explanation that would satisfy him, he had to do what he had done in chapter 2, which is call Daniel. And that's what he does. Daniel comes to hear the dream in verses 8 and 9. And he says about Daniel, verse 8, But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In other words, I named him, and I named him after one of my gods. And then he says, In whom a spirit of the holy gods lives. And he says that later in verse 9 as well. 
He has in Him a spirit of the holy gods. Now, this very well could be that King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know any other way to talk about Daniel's God. That, that he's speaking about God in the best terms that he can as a pagan, not knowing God personally. But it also could be that the idea that, that King Nebuchadnezzar is putting in is based on his now understanding after the events have already occurred. Remember, he's writing this to all the people after these events have occurred, and he's telling them what happens, and perhaps he's, he's showing now that Daniel does have the true and living God. Look at the margin of your Bible under verse 8. And notice the alternative for a spirit of the holy gods. Another way to translate it, this is the spirit of the holy God. A completely appropriate way for a believer to speak about God. Now, it's not clear. Again, uh, that's just the, the translators are saying we don't really know for sure the best one. We think the best one is what you have there in your text. But another possibility is what you have there in your margin. And, uh, and so that very well could be. Honestly, I, I don't know which way. I, I tend to lean toward the idea that he's actually revising what he now understands, like as a believer, he looks back on it and says, you know what Daniel had? It wasn't a spirit of the gods like I thought at that time. It was a spirit of the holy God. It was the spirit of the holy God. And uh, perhaps he's trying to show these people, listen, Daniel has the true and living God. In verses 8 and 9, we, uh, uh, we saw the success of Daniel. And, and then in verses 10 through 18, we see the content of the dream. Okay, remember, the king gives this dream to the wise men and he just asks for the interpretation. This time, the dream is not about a statue like it was before. Remember the statue with the head of gold and the, the chest and arms of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and what? Iron and clay. Okay, this time it's not about a statue. This time it's about a tree. Notice its size in verse 11. The tree grew large and became strong. And its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. you know any trees like this? And maybe you feel like that as you're raking your leaves. Man, this is the biggest tree I've ever seen. But, but, but there are no trees like this. This is the vision and its, its enormous size actually sticks out in the mind of of, uh, of King Nebuchadnezzar. And perhaps his first thought as he's seeing this vision is, wow, this is a great and mighty tree. Nothing can destroy it. Notice further, verse 12, we see its beauty. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. We see its beauty and then we also see its provision. It had fruit for all. The beasts of the field, middle of verse 12, found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Okay. This was a tree that provided sustenance for all living creatures and that provided safety and protection and beauty for all of creation as well. And yet, this tree was also being watched at the same time by this angel from heaven. Verse 13, as I lay in my bed, middle of the verse says, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. So he's watching this tree as it's growing, giving all this provision and beauty and, and so on. And the angel, verse 14, was not satisfied with the tree. He shouted, Chop down the tree. Cut off its branches. 
strip its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee, let the birds be removed from its branches. He's not happy with the tree, but he does make one provision. Verses 14 and 15, or verse 15, he allows the stump to remain. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. And not only will the stump remain, but it will be protected by this iron band. Notice in the middle of verse 15, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. Now it could be there's some kind of a uh, a metal strapping that would go around and hug tightly the, the stump of the tree in order to protect it in some way. But more likely... Uh, scholars believe that it's referring to a fence that would have not, not have been right up close to the stump, but would have been a, a, a decent distance away, but it would keep uh, critters and creatures from coming in and, and doing any harm to the stump because the stump was going to have a purpose later on. This stump also would be out in the elements. Notice in verse 15, in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. There's a subtle shift here from the tree being referred to as it, and now it's referred to as he. So it, it changes from that the tree is going to be out here, the tree stump's going to be there too. Now he is going to be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beast in the grass of the field or the grass of the earth. And so the analogy turns now from a tree to a person. And this helps us to see that this dream is not really about some gigantic tree that no one could have ever imagined. But it's really about a man. And notice what will happen to this man. We already know that he's going to be cut down, chopped down in some way. But in verse 15, he's going to be left out in the elements. And he's going to eat with the beasts of the field. Verse 16, he's going to think like an animal. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And then we're also given a period of time for how long this is going to take place. And notice how long it is at the end of verse 16. And let seven periods of time pass over him, or literally seven times. Let seven times pass over him until this, uh, until he, and it's going to go on to say, acknowledges the Most High as ruler over all. But before we get there, let's think about this phrase, seven periods of time, or seven times. Now, times or periods of time could refer to days, seven days, or it could be seven months. It's, uh, you're going to be like this for seven months. You're going to eat with the animals for seven months. You're going to think like an animal for seven months. Or it could be years. And notice what you have in the margin of your Bible. Instead of seven periods of time, one of the potential uh, translations is seven years. And I think this translation makes the most sense. Seven years. Because notice what happens to the king in verse 30. Verse 30. Again, this is a, a little um, peek into next week. The king reflected and said, is, not this Babylon, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle 
and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And, and then notice this part. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So, how long do you think it would take for the hair of a man to grow to be like eagles, the, the hair of a bird or an eagle, that it's just long and flowing? Would it be seven days, seven months, or seven years? And how long would it take him for, for his claws to grow out like a bird's claws? Right? Would it be seven days, seven months, or seven years? And I think that the that, that uh, this seven periods of time is actually referring to seven years. And this term times is also used again in chapter 7. Turn over there because uh, I want you to see here how this is connected to the end times and how we, uh, as dispensationalists, people who believe that, that, um, that there is coming a tribulation and then a kingdom, uh, where we get this idea that tribulation lasts for seven years. One of the places that we get it is from here. Verse 25, He, the Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High. This is at the midpoint of the tribulation. And he will wear down the saints of the Highest One and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. It's the same word that's used in chapter 4. Times. Now, we have it translated periods of time. But, but what I'm suggesting to you is that this word time in the book of Daniel has to do with years. And so the way that we would understand this last part of verse 25, time, times, and half a time, is time, one year, times, two years, and half a time, what would, be, what would that be? Half a year. Right? Six months. So, time, Times and half a time, one year, two years, and a half a year. It's kind of a weird way to just say, why don't you just say it? Three, three and a half years. But apparently this is the way that God revealed it to him, and I think that that is in keeping with our understanding of the tribulation. So, what I'm saying is, turn back to Daniel chapter 4, because what I'm saying is that the, the amount of time that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in this state where he thinks he's like an animal. He thinks like an animal is for seven periods of time or seven years. Notice the reason for the chopping of the tree and the humiliation of the man in verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones. And then here's the reason. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men going to become personal for King Nebuchadnezzar because God is making a point to him and to more than just him. He wants King Nebuchadnezzar to know. That's what Daniel is going to say in the next uh, section that we're going to look at next week. But God wants more than just him to know. He wants the living to know. You think it would make the news if the king of the greatest empire became insane for seven years and was eaten with the animals? Okay. That certainly would be well known among all the people. And then when he comes back to insanity, you think that would make news as well? Like, what do you have to say for yourself? 
You know what King Nebuchadnezzar says? What you read here in chapter 4. I, King Nebuchadnezzar, recognize that the God of the universe rules over all, and that His dominion is, an, is an, uh, an everlasting dominion, that His kingdom has no end. And let me tell you what happened to me. And he goes back and explains the events of his humiliation. Well, we know a lot of what this dream means, and I've kind of already alluded to several things, but notice Daniel's explanation of it in verses 19 to 26. The first thing that we see is that Daniel is very troubled about the revelation that he receives from God. King Nebuchadnezzar gives him the dream. Daniel responds with, man, I'm really troubled. Verse 19, Daniel was appalled for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The same kind of idea that's seen in verse 5. In verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar says, I was... I saw this dream and these fantasies and the visions in my mind and they kept alarming me. Hey, Daniel says, the same thing's happening for me. When I hear about this dream, it alarms me. But probably for a different reason. And the reason that he's troubled about it, we find, is that Daniel recognizes that it's about his master. That it's about his boss, King Nebuchadnezzar, for the last however many years, probably 20 or 30 years, under his rule. And he, he, he says, you know, all this tree that's going to reach up to the sky, have this great beauty, provide for all the animals, have all this food, and it's eventually going to be chopped down. In verses 20 through 22, he's saying, look at what he says in verse 22. It is you. King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the man. This is talking about you. The wrath of God is coming upon you. That's why the tree is going to be chopped down, verse 23. And perhaps you've been thinking about this angelic watcher, verse 23, and in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one. Don't, don't be troubled by that or confused about his role. Okay? Remember the purpose of angels. They're simply messengers of God. In fact, the, the very word angel means messenger. And they simply carry out what God wants to do. Notice, this is ultimately God's desire, God's demand to have this tree chopped down. Look at verse 25. That you will be driven away from mankind, so on, drenched in seven periods of time, middle of the verse, will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over all. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 24 is a better way to show this. This is the interpretation, O King. And this is the decree of, we would expect, angelic messenger. But instead, this is the decree of the Most High. So what we know is that the angelic messenger are simply, or angelic watchers, are simply messengers on behalf of the Most High. They're simply taking what God has told them and going down and saying, listen, we're not happy with this tree. We're chopping it down on behalf of God. King Nebuchadnezzar was going to be chopped down. But there's one important point, and that is that, that's left, and that is this stump. It's not going to be completely wiped out, all the roots you know, uprooted completely. Instead, the stump is going to remain. Verse 26, And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Here's what it means for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, you will be chopped down to size, but your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven or that it is God. Another way to talk about God. That it is heaven that rules. Okay, so your kingdom's not going to be taken away from you completely. Instead, 
God's going to allow for your kingdom to continue. For a time, remember, the head of gold was actually going to be removed or replaced by the chest of silver. But, but for a time, your kingdom is going to remain. So that means when, when King Nebuchadnezzar comes back from this seven-year period of humiliation, he's actually going to get his kingdom back. It's going to go on for several more years even after his death. In verse uh, 26 here, we see this mercy of God, that God's judgment and wrath are often put alongside of His mercy. That even while God brings about the consequences of sin, He still puts His hand out to to offer help. Remember in the judgment of the flood, He gave the people an opportunity to repent. He didn't just immediately, here comes the rains. Part of the purpose of of Noah taking so long to build the ark was to give the people another opportunity. This is God who is slow to mercy, or slow to to anger and abounding in love, quick to be merciful. In the judgment of Egypt, He gives the people of Egypt an opportunity to repent. Pharaoh, if you will just let God's people go, then He will not bring about these things upon you, right? There's an opportunity for them. In the tribulation, God is going to give opportunity for people to repent. He doesn't carry out and pour out all of His wrath at once. He does it over a period of time so that some people will repent, which is in fact what does happen. So God often in judgment allows for and and pours out His mercy alongside of it. But I hope you recognize that God's mercy will not be always available to all people. We say we 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 sing, "I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever." We believe that God's mercies will constantly be on us. But I hope you recognize that there is coming a day when God's offer of mercy is taken off the table for some, for many who will reject Him. There will come a time when it's too late for them to plead for mercy. At the great white throne judgment, there will be no mercy. God's mercy will not triumph over judgment there. The opportunity to accept Him as their Lord, as the Most High who rules over all, will be gone. That's what we're going to talk about tonight in Luke chapter 13. We have an opportunity to repent now God is merciful to us now. We wait till judgment time. We wait till the next life. It'll be too late. Daniel actually calls King Nebuchadnezzar to this repentance in verse 27. Just a great expression of Daniel's faith in God. Notice this. Therefore, O king... Okay, so what, what, do I, what am I supposed to think of all this? Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel's saying, listen, I know my God is merciful. And even though He has said that you will be chopped down, why don't you repent now? That's the idea of break away now from your sins and and break away now from your iniquities. You need to repent of your sins and turn to God for mercy and show evidence of that by doing righteousness, obeying Him. It's an expression of a work that God would start in him. He's calling for the work of regeneration in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. God humbles the proud. 
And this is one of the most loving things that God can do to us, especially when He does it in this lifetime. He humbles the proud. When we are blinded by our own sin, sometimes the most loving thing that God can do to us is knock us off of our pedestal on which we have propped ourselves. And sometimes, you know, He does that. And we come crashing down. And it's hard and painful and humiliating. You know what God's doing? He's lovingly revealing to us our sin and His worthiness to be trusted fully and to show us that, hey, we are not the kings, small k, of our own universe. But He is. And we need to look to Him. We need to repent of our sins. He is the worst judgment that God could ever bring on us is not that He would, he would humble us, humiliate us. That's not the worst judgment the worst judgment that could ever come on us is that God would allow us to continue in our sin. That God would say, fine, I'm giving you over to the lust of your flesh. Go with it. See how that works out for you. My hand of mercy is being pulled off. See, that is the most... That is the the worst form of judgment that God could bring on us. So if you see that in your life God is bringing about in some way some kind of humiliation because He's revealing your sin, exposing something that's in your heart. Don't see that as an act of judgment on God's part, but an act of mercy. He's lovingly humbling you. We are so prone to forget that God rules over all. We're prone to forget, especially when things are going well. And sometimes when we build ourselves up in our minds, when we when we, we, we fill up our lives with wealth and, and, and our lives are, are healthy and we're peaceful in our relationships, then we can get satisfied in those things apart from God and we become proud. And we forget that God was the one who got us the health. That God was the one who gave us the wealth. God was the one who gave us the peaceful relationships. That's the nature of sinful humanity. We reflect on the things that we have done and we think they're all because of us. Consider the life of Solomon. Right? He prays, I want to be a wise man. God says, because you asked that, I'm going to give you so much more. And he does. And what does Solomon do? He starts to stray from God at the end of his life. Now, we know he's a believer from Hebrews chapter 11. But he starts to offer sacrifices and marry all these women, false uh, uh, sacrifices to false gods and so on. How about the life of King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26? Where it's described that King Uzziah for the most part of his life, for several decades, did what was right in the sight of the Lord until he became strong. And then you know what he did? He became proud. He looked back on all those things that he had done and said, wow, what a great kingdom I have built. And when he became proud, he forgot God. He became unfaithful to God. And God struck him with leprosy to show him that he was not responsible for his position of power. Think of the example of Paul who was allowed to have and allowed to continue with the problem of the thorn in the flesh. And you know why? That God would keep me from exalting myself. That's what Paul would say. In 2 Corinthians 12.7 You see, friend, it's, it's better to be near God living in poverty in terrible health with all sorts of conflicts and relationships because of our stand for Christ 
It's, it's better to be near God and have all those things happen to us than it is to be drawn away by our lusts and have all this great health and wealth and peaceful relationships. Because there are lots of pagans who live a fun and happy, healthy, wealthy life that will be far from God for all of eternity. God often uses circumstances to humble us and to bring us down to reality, causing us to walk in the valley for a time so that when we're in the valley, the only place we can look is up to Him for help. Lord, You are my helper. I need You. God humbles the proud. But I hope you know from the rest of Scripture that God also exalts the humble. Sometimes God, sometimes God tears a person down in order to exalt them. But He also exalts the humble. That as we live a life of humility, where God is bringing us to our knees, constantly depending on Him, that, that to our world, by the way, seems like a sign of weakness on our part. Like, you have to depend on Him. Why don't you just you know, use your own self-motivation? But as God humbles us and brings us to our knees and knees and our recognize our, we recognize our dependence upon Him, you know what He does to those people? He exalts them. And in due time, Peter says, that in due time He will exalt the humble. We might see the chopping down of the tree as an act of ruthless judgment on God, but I think it was designed as an act of mercy for someone who needed to come to faith in Him. God used that chopping down of the tree of humiliating King Nebuchadnezzar to see him clearly. And I don't think he would have seen it with a lesser event. So I don't know what kind of things God is bringing into your life right now to actually humiliate you. But God may be using that to cause you to have a stronger grip on Him. That you have your dependence ultimately on Him, not on yourself, the things around you that He's given to you. Those, those are good. We should praise God for those things. We should enjoy those things. But when we make those things our God, we have moved God out of a place where He belongs, where we depend on Him, where we recognize His rightful rule over all things. Sometimes God lovingly humbles the proud so that one day He will exalt us by bringing us to a place on level, on some level, that's near His own Son, Jesus and we'll be co-heirs with Him. And so we praise God for His, for His work in our lives. We praise God for His rule over all things. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Your Word and how it often hits us between the eyes and helps us to see that we, we are not thinking properly when it comes to how you work in this life. We live in a society and a culture that exalts the individual and promotes individuality and, um, and uh, loves the self-made person. And Lord, we have to deny that sort of idea because we recognize that all of our making, all of our establishment as a person in whatever line of work or whatever part of life we're trying to build, it's all because of You. Lord, help us to rightfully and humbly acknowledge Your rule in our lives and be people who are constantly repenting of our sins, acknowledging our 
unholiness before You as we continue to see Your holiness more clearly. And we pray that the result would be that You would bring us on to glory and exalt us, not because of any works of righteousness which we have done, but according to Your mercy, which we will sing about forever and praise You forever because of Your mercies that are constantly upon us in this life and in the next. We pray in Jesus' name.